Pachango. ever meet a guy and you go into it thinking fuck this guy i'm not gonna like this guy uh because he did all the things you're supposed to do he went to yale he went to harvard he got a pulitzer prize in journalism he's got three new york times best-selling books fuck this guy and then you meet him and you talk for a while, and it's like, ah, fuck, but he's a nice guy. Shit. He's a pretty cool guy. Well, that's my guest today. His name's Charles Duhigg. He writes for The New Yorker. Um, his latest book, which is coming out, uh, I think it came out today or tomorrow, is called Super Communicators. You know, one of the things he does well is he's got a team that uh, sort of puts together the launch. So you're probably hearing about Charles Duhigg and super communicators all over the place. You're probably hearing him chatting with Terry Gross and Stephen Colbert. And he probably has a guest column in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And yeah, he does it right. And uh, you gotta you gotta give it to him. I mean, I guess you can be a nice guy and also be highly successful and just sort of good at everything you try. I guess it's possible. I don't know. I don't know what what is it that makes us want to sort of dislike people who who do these things so well? Do we feel it about all endeavors? We don't want to, I don't know, is there like an instinct to dislike great athletes or great musicians? I don't think so. Maybe it's just because he does things that I do. So so I feel personally implicated in some way. Like, why didn't I go to Yale? Why didn't I go to Harvard? How come I've only written one New York Times bestselling book? <laughs> we're, we're like, we're in the same arena so, uh, so I felt that kind of, uh, um, preemptive resentment or something. Anyway, uh, Charles is a nice guy. He's one of the, this is one of the few interviews that I do, um, by way of agencies who contact me and pitch writers. I almost never follow up on those because honestly, I don't know. There's something about people who are seeking attention that turns me off, which again, super hypocritical. Here I am, you know, bathing in your attention week after week, year after year. So who am I to uh, poo poo anyone else who's seeking a bit of public attention? Um, But yeah, there's just something. There's so many people clamoring for attention these days. It's kind of off putting. So I rarely follow up on these, but I'm interested in this guy's work. I read him in The New Yorker. Uh, I've read a bunch of articles he's written over the years. 
I think I may have read uh, some of some of his previous books. Um, you may have heard of them. I think there's The Power of Habit is one of them. Hold on, let me... Uh, yeah, The Power of Habit, Smarter, Faster, Better, and Super Communicators. I mean, that's another thing that kind of uh, puts me on a, a bit of an oppositional mindset uh, with this guy because... because I feel like his books are very much about how to do better in the world as it is. Where I feel that the world as it is is fucked and we should not be trying to do better in it. We should be trying to change it. So there's a fundamental difference of perspective that I have with people like this. You know, smarter, faster, better, the transformative power of real productivity is the second book. Whereas my whole life's about being smarter, slower, more authentic, <laughs> not faster, better. No, for me, smarter means slower, calm down, chill out, enjoy life. This isn't about being more productive. This is about enjoying those few moments that we have. I was walking today and I was thinking something very related to this, actually, now that it occurs to me, uh, how many different ways there are to measure success. And clearly, a guy like this, well... He's firing on all cylinders, right? Ivy League school, Ivy League grad degree, Pulitzer Prize, best-selling uh, books, uh, writes for the best, most respected outlets in the country. Boom, 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 boom. And I'm sure he's, you know, if he's married, I'm not sure. I think he lives in Santa Cruz. I think, you know, if he's married, I'm sure his wife is a fantastic person. I'm sure his kids are charming and beautiful and um, great, great. But there are other ways of measuring success. And again, you know, it comes down to, do you accept the parameters of the game? Do you want to succeed on the field as it's defined? Or do you challenge the whole basis of the game? Do you, do you question the game itself? So, yeah, you can measure success or productivity, as it's often called, in terms of money, in terms of awards, in terms of public recognition. Um, and I was thinking, for me, one of the greatest measures of success is how much time have you spent doing something you really didn't want to do? And of course, we can choose those matrices of success retroactively, right? So we can sort of look at what our life has turned out to be and say, well, I didn't want those things anyway. The things that are really important are the things I got, you know? Um, so there can definitely be a kind of uh, cover your ass uh, quality to this looking back and thinking. But I've, I... I think character is destiny and as much as I enjoyed certain aspects of school and enjoyed thriving in an academic environment, um, when I did, 
um, I, I was never motivated by it. So I don't, I don't think I'm sort of looking back and making excuses. Um, but I look at my life and I say, man, I've spent very, very little time doing something I didn't want to do. Very little. And even when I was doing something I didn't want to do, I didn't feel morally implicated by it. I didn't feel disgusted with myself. I didn't feel like I'm just selling time. I'm just sitting here pretending to work. I think the reason, maybe the reason that came to mind is I had been listening to an interview between, it was on uh, Tetragrammaton, I think is the name of the podcast. It was a conversation between Rick Rubin and Terry Gilliam, the great film director, formerly of Monty Python fame, the only American in, in Monty Python's Flying Circus. And they were talking about his career, Terry Gilliam's career, and he was talking about how he'd been fired from a job. Uh, and I thought, yeah, everyone should get fired from a job. Because it was a job where he felt his dignity he didn't he didn't get fired he quit actually now that i'm thinking of it he was he was some nobody on a on a film set very young and they were trying to they were filming a particular scene and they were looking for the right angle and he was like uh i really think this will work best if you shoot from this angle and they all looked at him like who the fuck are you kid and just ignored him and he was like uh okay fuck you guys and he left and he was broke and he was like living on someone's sofa at the time. He could not afford to quit the job, but he felt he, the way he described it, he, he said, I, okay, I may have been nobody at the time, but I have good ideas. And if I'm with people who won't even listen to my ideas, then I'm leaving because I listen to their ideas. I think, you know, any artistic environment is one in which ideas are welcome. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of corrosive, um, insulting energy was intolerable to me. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's good. Right. Cause that's how we should make our lives. When it feels really wrong, you got to get up and walk out, whether it's a relationship or a job or, uh, you know, a, a field of study or whatever, because it's just going to get worse. It's going to keep feeling wrong and you're going to keep feeling that the moment to leave has passed and now you've got this sunken cost and this vested interest and you're not going to leave ever. Um, anyway, so that's one way of measuring life. How much time did you spend doing things you didn't want to do? How many sunsets have you seen? Um, you know, how much love have you felt? How much love have you expressed? How, how many, you know, great friendships have you had? Whatever. Choose your measures carefully is what I'm saying. Don't just accept whatever measures are presented to you by whatever society you happen to live in, whatever moment in history you happen to be in. I got a really nice email from a guy the other day and he was he's in college and he was talking about how he doesn't really fit in because the vibe is just party, 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 you know, go to, go to class and then graduate and then go get a job and party and, you know, make money and keep partying and have some kids and keep partying. And he was like, I, this isn't what I want. Like, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I'm looking 
10, 20 years ahead and I see, you know, an alcoholic with a membership at the golf club and two kids and married to a woman I don't really know very well. And like, that's ah, not me. And he said, but I walk around Friday nights and I hear the parties going on and I feel like a loser because I'm not there. And, you know, and that's the crux of it, right? That we're not doing what we hear everyone else doing. And so we feel like there's something wrong with us. But then as you get older, you realize no one knows what the fuck they're doing. And those people are just doing that because everyone else is doing that. They're not thinking for themselves. So you're not the loser. You're not the loser is not the person who's doing what they want. He's not the person who's figuring out what's true for him or her. It's the person who's ignoring those questions, who's ignoring the opportunity to redefine the game you're going to play. Don't just accept the game. Don't just suit up and run out onto the field and play by their rules. You have the opportunity to totally define the game that you're going to play. And I would encourage you to do that uh, whenever you can, and it's never too late. Okay, Super Communicators is the book. Charles Duhigg is the author, and uh, he's an annoyingly smart, kind, humble, decent dude. And I'm sorry, Charles, if you are listening to this, which I don't think you are because you're super busy. But uh, if you do happen to listen to this, I'm sorry for thinking I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't like you. But I did, and I do. So I wish you every success. All right, I'm going to play you out with a song that is very much about the trials and tribulations of communication. How do men and women communicate? How does it feel when a relationship just isn't working? Yeah, we all know that feeling. It's hopeless, helpless, so sad, so frequent. Again, if that's the feeling, then you got to get out. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in failure. There's no shame in knowing what you don't want to do. That's what it's all about. Figure out what you don't want to do. Narrow it down. The song is called Breaking Us in Two, and it's by the great Joe Jackson. Don't you feel like trying something new? Don't you feel like breaking out or breaking us in two? You don't do the things that I do. You want to do things I can't do. Always something breaking us in two. You and I could Don't you feel like breaking out just one day on your own? Why does what I'm saying hurt you? I didn't say that we were through. 
Uh, congratulations on the book. I, I really Thanks. enjoyed it. Um, Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I know I know what a lonely endeavor it is to write a book and promote yeah, so, it. Yeah. Yeah. So you've when when did your last book come out? 
Uh, during COVID, actually. Oh, so, that's rough. Yeah, three years ago, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the promotional thing was a lot more subdued than my first book. Um, partly, I think, also because of the you know the content. My first book was about sex, so everybody wanted to talk right. about that. It's it's an easier sell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although my take on it was kind of uh, controversial, but controversy is an easy sell too. So exactly. Exactly. Speaking of controversy, I just want to say, start out by saying how much I respect your editorial decision to, to confront some really um, contentious issues in this book. Oh, thanks. You could have chosen lots of different examples to make your points, but you talked about, you know, gun control and, um, uh, you know, you, you were very vaccines, you got into the vaccine issue and, and, and uh, we put them in the later chapters, right? Yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely <laughs> kind of worked our way up to that. But thank you for saying that. That's really kind of you. And I, in part, it's because I felt like, look, if you're going to, if you're going to write a book about having conversations, then it should be about how to have like the easy conversations, but also the hard conversations, right? Well, it's, especially the hard conversations. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, you, Those are I'm the most sure. meaningful ones. And you've heard that that old adage, hard conversations make for an easy life and the absence of hard conversations make for a hard life. And yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to that, you know? Um, so, yeah. So I think it was, I would have been disappointed if you hadn't put into practice the principles that you're talking about by getting into some difficult territory uh you know you talked about the controversy at netflix and how netflix was sort of built up to be this place where anything goes and everything's on the table and let's talk about hard stuff and then somebody right (laughs) did someone uses the n-word and it turns out that like some conversations are a lot harder than others right because we don't yeah And, and i will say i think that part of it was that I have this deep belief, and I, I think history bears it out that that a our success as a as a species, but b most notably this nation, has been successful because of our ability to have conversations. Like if you think about the Constitutional Convention, it's essentially a conversation between people who hate each other, and who manage to you know forge out a constitution and birth a country. And we've always been really good at that. We've been good at containing these multitudes and these contradictory multitudes. But I think we've forgotten how to do some of that, particularly with like the advent of like the internet and then politics for the last eight years. We've kind of lost, we've, we've gotten out of practice. And so that was one of the things I was hoping to do was to, to remind people we can do this. Yeah. What? You know, you said the internet and, and of course the internet is so, has scrambled everything to such an extent that it it seems like a likely culprit for whatever the crime in question happens to be. But I, I feel like it goes back further than that. And, and I don't want to, you know, go off into politics too much, but, um, you know, I, to me, a, a corner was turned in 1980 when you had Jimmy Carter saying, Let's adopt the metric system. Let's wear sweaters and turn down the thermostats. Let's a, let's deal with reality here, people. You know, let's let's confront what's really happening. We're using too much energy and we're wasteful. And and um, 
you know, and then Reagan saying, fuck that. It's morning in America. We're, we're the greatest. Let the world adapt to us. And you have for the first time, at least in my awareness, someone running for office who says government is the problem. Right. And yeah. so to me, what I feel has happened is, you know, I grew up. I'm probably older than you. I'm 61, but I grew up and, and some of the, the sort of adages that you would hear at school were sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Yeah. Right. I don't hear that anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, I may, I may despise what you're saying, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. I don't hear yeah. that anymore. So I, I feel like in the connection with Reagan that I'm trying to make is I feel like until then, there were certain rules that we all agreed to. And I feel like the pivot was, no, no, the rules don't apply anymore. And well, I think and I, we're we're seeing the fruit, the bitter fruit of that now. And in some ways, that's the fact that we can have people who disagree. Like, I, it is crazy to me that we have a country where so many people believe that abortion is a human right and so many other people believe that abortion is murder right? and that so many people believe that we we should regulate guns and so many other people believe that the second amendment and owning as many guns as you want is a fundamental american freedom and in some ways that's kind of what makes america great right is that we have this like crazy internal diversity of ideology and of thought and of behavior we're we're running 52 experiments every single day but you're exactly right that like it only works it only works if we agree to talk about what those experiments are revealing that doesn't mean we have to agree with each other it doesn't mean that we have to right. you know say say one person can say that's a success another person can say a failure and they can both be right what is important is that if your strength is diversity you need to be able, and, and I'm talking about diversity in the broadest sense, not the DEI sense, but diversity, meaning like all the ideas and all the perspectives. It only becomes a strength if you have a system where people can participate in the marketplace of ideas. And that is conversation, right? Like I think for anyone who's listening, and this is probably true for you too, I would imagine, but tell me if it isn't, probably some of the most meaningful moments of your life are when you had a great conversation and that conversation was not great because it told you things you already knew that conversation was great because it exposed you to a perspective or an idea or an emotion that you hadn't thought of that way before. And that's the thing that whether it's, it's Carter and Reagan or whether it's, you know, Biden and, and Trump, we are strong because we have this ability to sit down and discuss our differences and not necessarily agree, but at least understand why those differences exist and respect and respect. Right. And right? exactly. Be able to say like, look, I don't agree with you, but I understand why you think the thing you, why you believe that. Right. And oftentimes that's all that it takes is just telling the other person, I understand where you're coming from. And then they feel listened to. And that's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Was it in the book or, or, or something else I saw in the last few days uh, talking about someone talking to hard? Oh, it was in the vaccine section it, where where the doctor that, that you were profiling, the, the guy comes in and he and he just like declares no way, no vaccine. I don't trust the government. I don't trust. 
And the doctor's like, okay, that's his identity. So there's yeah. nothing I can say that's going to change that. Right. But we can accept and respect that man's identity and move on from there. I, I feel like, you know, it, it's like, I don't know, UFC or boxing or, or any other kind of conflict sport. If we abandon the rules, the whole thing breaks down. Yeah. And so that's a great example of vaccine chapter. And again, these are sort of the later chapters, the earlier chapters, which we should talk about just to give people a context um, of, of sort of the science. But but you're so I talked to so many different doctors, physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners and PAs, and they all describe the exact same thing. Someone comes in and they're like, I'm completely anti-vaccine. I, I don't want the government telling me what to do. I don't trust any of the experts. I've done all my own research and I know that it's much more complicated than what they're telling us. And your first instinct as a healthcare provider is to say like, no, 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 let me convince you, right? Let me show right. you the evidence. Let me show you the papers. I'm the expert. That have con- not the expert. And also yeah. like, I was convinced by these papers. Let me show that never works because you're right. Their identity is built around being anti-vaccine. On the other hand, if they say to them, you know what? You have done a lot of research and I totally hear that. And I'm not going to tell you that you should get a vaccine today, but there are these other things that we have in common. And actually they don't usually say the, but they use this thing called motivational interviewing where they draw out other identities. You know, I know that I saw that you go to the church that I go to. I saw that your kids go to the same high school that my kids go to. You know, we actually, we have these things in common. Like we have some common values and some common beliefs. And the interesting thing and the complicated thing about life is oftentimes we're, we're multiple different people. We have multiple identities and some of those identities actually conflict with each other, right? Like, right. like the Pope said we should get vaccines. And for someone who's <laughs> anti-vax vax, vaccination, that's probably really hard to figure out. Like, do I listen to my instinct or do I listen to the head of my church or our kids both go to the same school? And I know that you're a great parent and I'm a great parent. You probably worry about, about your kids infecting other people. And, and so like, let's, instead of talking about head on these like identities that clash, let's talk about the identities that we kind of share. And once we remind people that all of us contain multitudes, that all of us contain dozens of different identities, that's when suddenly we have the ability to listen to the other person. And that's, what's missing. So from so much of the conversation around race and around economics and around politics right. is we push people into these little pigeonholes. You're black and I'm white. The fact that we're both lawyers never comes up. The fact that we both have kids going to the same school never comes up. The fact that we both care about our community never comes up. You're a Republican and I'm a Democrat. And we just define each other that way. But but that that doesn't get us to really understanding each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, hitchhiked a lot when I was young. Oh yeah. I, I hitchhiked from New York to Alaska and back twice. Um, and I often think about that when people ask me about this podcast, you know, I, I've been doing this podcast for a dozen years and people say like, why, why, why do you keep doing that? You know, what's the, and it reminds me of my hitchhiking days um, because, you know, obviously I choose guests now, which is very different from hitchhiking, but it was such a revelation to me because I was this pedantic, little, you know, college student thinking I was so smart and I was, you know, whatever I was in a, I was in a very specific world at that time. And once I got out on the road and started hitchhiking and people were picking me up, first of all, you're beginning with gratitude, right? This person stopped 
for you. You're standing along the side of a road in the middle of nowhere and this person stops. So whoever they are, whatever their thing is, they're getting you out of the rain and cold and whatever. Um, and it was just rolling the dice. You never know who this is. Who's this going to be? What's their story? What are they? What's their agenda? If they have an agenda beyond just being generous. And um, I learned so much about the world because I was forced into a stance of pre sort of preemptive respect. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. about that a lot now in, in light of what you were just talking about, how we dismiss each other so quickly. You know, of course you'd say that you're Jewish, you know, right. of course. Oh, oh, but you know, Oh, you're black capital B. Okay, fine. That's that's, you know, and we do it to ourselves. Well, speaking as a, you know, lesbian, I just want to say, Anytime I see a sentence begin with speaking as a, I'm already lost, you know, that, that shouldn't matter. Well, and can, so can I ask you, cause yeah. it occurs to me that when you're, I, I love that you started with the gratitude that like the plate. So there's this idea in the book called looping for understanding, right? This is a technique that they teach at Harvard law and a bunch of other places that when you're in a tough conversation with someone, when you're in conflict, that oftentimes one of the things that happens is that we think we're showing the other person that we're listening to them without realizing that when you're speaking, you really don't pay any attention to what your audience is doing, right? You're like, it's so hard to talk and come up with ideas that if the other person is nodding or if they're like, you know, going, oh yeah, right. We don't even really notice it. And so the way that we show someone we're listening is when they're done speaking to us by what we say. And there's this technique known as looping for understanding that's really effective, which is, First, start by asking a question or, or showing some gratitude, right? Something that like, just kind of like adds, adds some curiosity or some positiveness. So that's step one. Step two is after the person has answered your question or they've said their piece, repeat back to them in your own words, what you just heard them say. And, and then step three, and this is the important step that everyone always forgets. Step three Ask them if you got it right. Because if you say some idea, if I ask you a question and you re react with some crazy idea and I say, what I hear you saying is this and kind of try and show that I'm understanding it. And then I say, did I get that right? You feel like I'm really listening. You feel like I want to understand. And my guess is, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, is that when you were hitchhiking, you did a lot of that. You probably gave people the gift of showing that you're listening to them. Is that right? Is that right? So what you're saying is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They used to call that active listening. Yeah. Uh, repeat yeah. back what someone says. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And and it was also, you know, I think, as I alluded to, it, it came at a very important time in my life because I was, you know, late teens, early 20s, kind of full of myself, full of my own stories talking way more than I should have been talking, listening less than I should have been listening. And being in that position really made it clear to me how, how out of balance that was and yeah. how it needed to be addressed. Um, you know, and, and I think it, it was incredibly beneficial, um, you know, to, so to sit back and listen to these people and, and just, yeah, it changed my life. It it totally yeah. changed the trajectory of my life. 
And by the way, if my children are listening to this, you should not hitchhike. This is not an endorsement of hitchhiking. No. But yeah, so, so, so the name of the book is Super Communicators, right? And and at the core of it is this basic idea that all of us are super communicators at one time or another, right? Sometimes we like know exactly what to say to our friend. We know what to say in that meeting. We, we know how to connect. But there are some people who think more deeply about this, who have studied the skills a little bit more. And they're more consistently super communicators. They they can kind of do it on demand, but that there's skills any of us can learn. It's not an inborn trait. Let me ask you this. Like if you were having a bad day, I'm wondering who the super communicators are in your life. If you were having a bad day and you wanted to call someone who you knew was just going to make you feel better, who's that person? Do, do you know who that is? Well, it would have been my dad, but he died five years ago. Um, oh, I'm sorry. But he was a very... Um, he was a very, he, he worked in public relations. He was a journalist. He worked, he was in civil rights and, you know, he, he was, uh, he was a schmoozer. You could say like he, he, yeah. people liked being around him. He was, he was fun and, and friendly. Um, but he was a very respectful listener and, um, and was very careful, uh, as my dad, he was very careful not to, offer unsolicited advice, for example, hmm. you know, that's really interesting. Um, so he wasn't just, okay, here's what you do. It was more like, Oh, tell me more about that. And, you know, uh, and how does that make you feel? And he, he was very, he understood that my entire experience was very different from anything that he'd ever experienced. And so it was very contextual, you know, he was never yeah. like, apply my lessons to your life it was more like okay what are the lessons that come out of this experience for you um yeah so yeah so that. he sounds he sounds like he was a super communicator not just for you but for yeah. lots of people yeah and what? he had a great marriage and and he was very like with my mom it was very like we got to sit down and talk about this he all these principles that have sort of become mainstream thanks to your work and and others he knew that he knew instinctively, I think. So if, if you were, if you were writing a book, the super communicators book based on your dad, like what are the rules that you've started using in your own life? Uh, yeah. Respect and gentleness. Yeah. That have you, I don't know if you've ever heard of a book called finite and infinite games. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. James Carr's book. Love yeah. it. Love it. Um, Someone gave it to me when I was in my twenties. Uh, and you know, it's, it's, I still think about it every week, but, but I think one of the principles in that book was to understand that there are situations in life where the goal is to win, right? Whatever, yeah. uh, um, uh, you know, out and out conflict where it's a zero sum situation, but that most interpersonal situations, the goal is to enjoy the process and continue the relationship so yeah. it's not to win but i think people confuse that where they think having an argument with your partner you want to win you don't which win. is totally natural that's a natural yeah. instinct right and <laughs> yeah. or or if you're in an argument over an issue to think like oh no, no no the other person just doesn't understand all the facts like if i just give them all the facts right and we both know that never works yeah and and this gets to so there's another sort of big idea in the book, which is that there's these different kinds of conversations, right? That that oftentimes when we come to a discussion, we think that we're talking about one thing. We're talking about gun rights or we're talking about, 
you know, mm-hmm. where we should go to dinner. Right. But that actually what the research shows us is that every discussion is made up of multiple different kinds of conversations and that most of them fall into one of three buckets. There's these practical conversations where we're talking about decision-making or, or how we're going to talk to each other. There's these emotional conversations where the goal is not to like come up with a plan or fix a problem. The goal is to express how we feel and, and know that the other person understands us. And then there's social conversations, which is about how do we relate to each other and how do we relate to society, which is often hard to do and hard to parse out. And one of the things that I think happens is that we come into a conversation thinking it's a practical conversation, right? We're like, look, Mike, the goal here is to figure out whether gun rights are, are good or bad. The goal here is to figure out whether abortion should be free and legal or should be, or is murder. And actually everyone in that conversation actually is having an emotional conversation, right? Because they're not talking about abortion just as abortion. They're talking about abortion as representing these values that are so important to them. Same thing with guns. Same thing with like me and my wife talking about like what we should do, where we should go on vacation. We think we're just talking about Hawaii versus Europe, but in truth, what we're talking about is you know, we went to your place last time and it's only fair to go to my place this time. And I'm going to feel upset if you don't agree with me. And so oftentimes this is known as the matching principle is that if we can identify what kind of conversation we're in and then match each other, then we're going to start communicating much more easily. So part of it is I might match you, or I might invite you to match me. But once we're on the same plane, once we're talking about the same, once we're having the same kind of conversation, emotional or practical or social, then we can connect. And from there, we can move through the different conversations together because we might start emotional and then get practical and then talk about how this impacts other people, which is social. But it's this, this gracefulness that you mentioned, this gentleness about recognizing what kind of conversation is actually happening and then being willing to match the other person and inviting them to match you that allows us to connect in the first place. Right. Yeah. It's not about having your viewpoint win over, right. win the day or, or browbeat someone into submission. I, a great illustration of, of what you're talking about, um, I witnessed years ago, is I was speaking at a place called Idea City in Mexico. It's kind of like the TED Talks of Mexico. And um, oh, there were a lot of people there you would have known, probably uh, Robert Sapolsky and uh, oh, De- yeah. um, uh, Helen Fisher, who, who wrote uh, some similar books to what I've been doing. And anyway, there, there were like a, a bunch of scientists and the, an audience of about 2,000 people. And the the big event was a debate between Deepak Chopra and Richard Dawkins. Oh, wow. About spirituality and, you know, the nature of God and all that. Dawkins yeah. doing his whole, you know, militant atheist shtick. Right. And Deepak doing his, the world is infused with spirit shtick. And um, it was really interesting because the two of them were up there on stage sitting in like lounge chairs, kind of relaxed setting. And uh, Deepak began answering some question and he was very, his body language was relaxed and friendly and kind of, and Richard Doc, after he finished talking, he was doing his whole quantum nonsense. And Richard Dawkins turned to the audience and he said, how many of you understood what he just said? 
and about you know two thirds of the audience raised their hands and he said you're all liars because <laughs> what he said was incomprehensible there's no way you understood it it was nonsense and he was just so angry that the 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 subject the, the content of what the two of them were saying didn't matter yeah you know what i mean it, it was like you could have turned off the volume you might as well turn off the volume because they're, they're not they're coming, actually talking to each they're other they're not yeah. talking to each other right and but and one guy's guess- friendly and relaxed and the other guy's angry and hostile well, and, and my guess is those two thirds of people who raise their hands, even if they didn't follow the ideas, the practical part of that conversation, they probably really tied into Deepak was actually talking to them from an emotional conversation, right? He was exactly. talking about our aspirations for the universe exactly. and how we, how we, and how we find meaning <clears throat> and, and Richard by saying, by saying like the emotional conversation shouldn't be happening. This should just be a practical conversation. It means anyone who wants to have that emotional conversation, you've already alienated. Right. Now, I, I would suggest that there's a way around this, which is, and there's this researcher um, at the University of Chicago named Nicholas Epley, who has done a lot of work on what kinds of questions help us break through. And what he's found is that the best kinds of questions are deep questions. And a deep question is just something that asks someone to explain their values, their beliefs, or their experiences. And oftentimes deep questions don't seem that deep, right? So like, if I ask you like, what do you do for a living? And someone says, I'm a lawyer. And I say, oh, did you always want to be a lawyer? Like, do you love practicing the law? What made you decide to go to law school? Like, those are three questions, which are actually deep questions because they're asking that other person to tell me about their values and their beliefs and their experience, the most important experiences in their life going to law school. And, and what, I find that what the research shows us is that in these situations, and in the book, we talk about this in the context of the CIA officer is trying to recruit um, agents overseas and this, this jury de- in yeah. deliberations where th- this one juror kind of is a super communicator and, and, and manages to get everyone around a, a, a verdict. But what we find is that when you ask that question, if instead of attacking Deepak Chopra, or instead of, if he had asked, if Richard Hawkins had said, tell me why it's so important to you that spirituality is real. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 just explain to me, like, what was the experience in your life that made you decide, like, I'm going to move away from this rationalist perspective. I'm going to start. If he had asked that, not only would he have Deepak, like, like sort of feeding into him, the entire audience would feel like, Richard, like, like Hastings is this guy who's trying to really get to the bottom of things. And then when Hastings says, what I heard you say is so-and-so, did I get that right? Now, let me tell you why I disagree. Like why I think you're having an emotional conversation and this should actually be a practical conversation. We should be talking about practice, about logic. And everyone in that room would have been able to follow along with him. Now he might not have persuaded all of them, but they all would have been listening to what he had to say. And some of them would have been said, you know what? That's a really good perspective. I agree. Yeah. But if you don't match each other, if you don't ask these deep questions to figure out what kind of conversation is happening, then you're throwing those dice that you mentioned with a hitchhiking. You're just hoping that everyone in that audience happens to feel the same way you do. Yeah. Which, which, which is the opposite of your intention, right? Your intention is to draw people to your perspective, not to assume they already have it. Yeah. Right. So it it was a very strangely amateurish move for this guy to make who'd been, you know, 
educated at Oxford, written 10 yeah. global bestsellers. Like, why are you hostile, man? You're you're on top of the world. Well, and and the truth is, maybe he didn't want to have a conversation, which which is fine. Like sometimes that happens, right? Like I I sit down with someone and they are politically completely different from me. And like, I don't actually want to have a conversation with them. I want to like eat my lunch and then go back to work or I want to hang out with my friends. Yeah, It's okay to admit to ourselves when we don't want to have a conversation. Not if you've accepted $50,000 to appear for That's an true. hour. That's true. If you've accepted $50,000, <laughs> you should be into that conversation. Have your fucking conversation, <laughs> dude. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, I studied Aikido uh, f- for quite a while when I was oh, younger. Wow. And a lot of what you wrote in the book reminded me of Aikido and, and also what you just said in that it's a non-confrontational um, approach to conflict. Oh, tell me about that. That's really interesting. I, I've never done Aikido. Well, Aikido is, you know, I studied several different martial arts and, and Kung Fu and, and uh, Taekwondo are are much more about uh confrontation and deflection aikido is really interesting because aikido was developed for unarmed monks to defend themselves against samurais who had swords and interesting so you you know someone someone comes you know with a strike overhead uh in taekwondo you block and counterattack, and in kung fu you do a circular block and then counterattack. In Aikido, you give up that space hmm. because he's got a sword. I'm not going to block his sword with my forearm, right? Right. So when in Aikido, the idea is, oh, you're going to attack this way? Okay, let me get out of the way, allow you to follow through on that movement, on that momentum that you've established, and then tweak it in a way that neutralizes the threat and demonstrates to you that you actually don't want to fight me because I know things that you don't know and I can't control. But when you throw someone in Aikido, you cradle the back of their head so they don't get hurt. There, there's an assumption of, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to diffuse the conflict. And so I used that a lot in my first book when I was on tour doing a lot of talks you know hundreds or thousands of people and sometimes i'd get the hostile questioner and you know someone would say like uh well you know you're saying that uh you you know our ancestors never loved each other or or whatever because i was arguing that our ancestors weren't naturally monogamous right and the thing i realized is i have to give them give him that I can't take that from him. So the answer would be something along the lines of, I certainly understand why you think that's what I was arguing, because it can be really confusing, you know, or uh, what you mentioned earlier saying like, oh, you've done a lot of research on this stuff. You really understand primates, Um, you know, so we can talk on this level about it. But the beginning of the interaction is what can feel like a surrender, but actually isn't. It's a repositioning. It's a strategic allowance, which is a sign of respect. Again, I think coming back to respect. And I think a big part, what I love about what you just said is one of the things I heard in it is simply acknowledging the other person. 
like right. acknowledging the, the fact that they have the right to be in this conversation. And this is one of the things that we find with um, those social conversations I mentioned, that there's a lot, our instinct oftentimes is to downplay our differences, right? Not to call attention to the fact that we, we have, we come from different places. Maybe we have different experiences because of our gender or race or where we grew up, or we have different political beliefs or just different beliefs in general, different religions. But what, what a lot of the research shows is that when we acknowledge someone's identity, even if it's different from ours, they feel seen in that conversation. So it's totally acceptable to go into a conversation talking about policing and say to someone, you know, ma'am, as a mom who's black, I imagine you see this differently than I do as a father who's white. And I'm wondering, like, do you think that's right? Like, like tell me your perspective on this. And, and oftentimes we want to shy away from naming those differences. But very frequently when you, you say that and think about when it's been said to you, when someone's brought you into a conversation by acknowledging who you are, it feels really empowering. Like it feels like someone's saying, you have the right to speak here in a way that's different from me. That doesn't mean it's better or worse. It doesn't mean that I don't have the right to speak. It means that we have differences and that those differences help us see things in a, a more complicated and more myriad ways. And so I think a big part of conversations is exactly what you just said about Aikido, is, is starting by saying, I'm not gonna fill all this space. In fact, I'm gonna acknowledge that there is some space that belongs to you that's different from my space. And I'm going to ask you, ask you about that space in a way that you don't, you don't feel like you have to defend it. And I don't feel like I have to attack it. I'm not blocking your, your movement. I'm exactly. not blocking anything. You have, exactly. You're free to follow through. You yeah. know, you mentioned the CIA uh, anecdote. And I have to say, when I was reading that, uh, you know, you're talking about this guy who's trying to convince a woman um to to be an informant and she's scared to death because the government that she works for kills people for that kills people yeah. for that <laughs> you know um and he's like okay i need it and i guess he he went to his bosses and they were expecting him to follow up and, and then he was like oh no she's not into it and they're like you gotta do it yeah uh I, I, it made me think like how these principles that you're outlining in the book, which I know your your motivation is to help people communicate and be, you know, have a better life, but they can be misused. Oh, totally. They can be manipulative. Because he's thinking, I gotta go convince her to risk her life for me and convince her that I care and I'll protect her. Where we both know that's not that's not accurate. He can't protect her. He can't protect her from everything. And and you're exactly right. So Super communicators is about the tools that are available to us to communicate better. And like any tools, they can be misused, right? An ax is a wonderful thing for cutting down trees and building houses. It can also be used to kill people. Right. And so in, in large part, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't build axes and that we shouldn't teach people how to use them, but we should say, this is how an ax works. Now, what's what's interesting about that situation that you mentioned, um, Jim Lawler is the name of the CIA officer who who told me this story, is that the way eventually that the the reason why this woman Fatima agrees to work with him, and that by the way is a is a made up name, it's not her real name. Um, <laughs> oh it's no, still, it's still we confidential. Just got Fatima yes. killed. Still, still classified. 
<laughs> but the way that he convinces Fatima is that Fatima had actually she had they had met in Europe because she she worked for the government in her home country in the Middle East. And she was so upset because her government had become increasingly religious and increasingly fundamentalist. So they had started requiring women to wear to wear the hijab. They had said that women can't go to school anymore, that there's certain topics that they can't study in college. You can probably guess which country it is, but but Jim never told me exactly which one it is. And and when Jim was talking to Fatima, he kept on trying to convince her like, oh, we want the same thing. We want the same thing. And that was true. Like she actually wanted to help him, but she was terrified. And what what changed things was that in their final conversation, at this point, he had given up and he was like, I'm going to get fired from the CIA. I've totally screwed this up. Instead of trying to convince her that like they want the same thing, he just started talking about how he about his own failures. He was like, you know, like you're about to go back to your home country and you feel like a failure because you you don't know what to do to make life better for women. I feel like a failure because I've been here for a year and I have recruited zero spies. Like literally my boss has told me I'm going to get fired. And I see these other people who came in, came in with me and they like seem to have this confidence or this poise that I don't have. And, and he's just really honest with her. And as soon as he's emotionally honest with her, that's when she starts to trust him and she can hear what he's saying. And what he's saying isn't actually that manipulative. What he's saying is, if you want to help the women of your country, if you work with me, we want that too. We're going to do everything we can to, to increase the values, to embody the values that you believe in. And so ultimately, I don't think it is manipulative. I think it's actually honest. But when he said that earlier, when he was telling her, like, we want the same thing, she couldn't hear it. And he was trying to manipulate her. He was just trying to, like, bully his way into convincing her. But once he realized, like, actually, she needs to talk about her emotions. She needs to feel like she can trust me, that she knows who I am. And she needs to believe, and this is true, I will do anything possible to protect you. That doesn't mean he's going to be able to protect her 100%. And he's honest about that. But to say, to be able to say, like, when I say I will do whatever I can to protect you, I won't put you in danger if I can help it. She needs to believe him. And that's not a practical conversation. That's an emotional conversation. And once they have that emotional conversation... Then they can start the practical conversation and say, like, we want the same thing. And she's like, yeah, I want to help you guys. She became the best asset in the Middle East in like 25 years hmm. because, because she was able to connect with Jim. Yeah. Yeah. I keep thinking about, you know, the Laotians who helped us and the Afghani interpreters who helped us. And, you Absolutely. know, like it's not the individual can be totally sincere in in his uh determination to to protect them but if the geopolitics changes yeah and that's um, that's, a, that's a big part of what his job was once he got back to the US mm. is to make sure like I'm how how do I keep that promise and i will say the cia has a pretty mixed record on a lot of things but they actually take that very seriously. Like well, if you're one of yeah. their agents, they will do anything to try and protect you. Yeah. Including retrieving hidden documents from a bathroom at Mar-a-Lago. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, send in a team, get those documents. Um, yeah. So, so other, I'm thinking about super communicators and careers in which being a super communicator uh, would 
allow one to rise to the top. Certainly salesmen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe politicians, although there's so many horrible communicators in politics now. It's kind of amazing. That is true. Um, detective, yeah. you know, a hostage negotiator. Or just a manager. Like, think about like, mm. I, I mean, I, for anyone listening, like, think about the last time you have had a job that you hated or you belong to a team that you just wish you weren't part of. It's probably because your manager was a terrible communicator, right? Yeah. Like, like they weren't hearing what you were saying. They were sending mixed messages. It, it's interesting because like communication is humans superpower and being a super communicator is the superpower, right? Like if you look at who's successful, it's usually because they're better communicators than everyone around them. Mm. And the thing that sets us across apart from every other species is our ability to communicate complex ideas through language and through writing. And that means that we can form societies much, much faster and we can specialize within those societies much, much faster. That's the thing that has allowed humans to become so successful. It's the thing we have that no other species has. And we all know how to do it, right? Like, What's amazing about conversation and communication is it's so complicated, and yet we spend 80% of each day doing it. And in many ways, like the reason I wrote this book, Super Communicators, was to try and explain to people what we've learned about the science of it, to let their instincts come out more. Because we have these instincts on how to be super communicators, but oftentimes we've forgotten how to listen to them. Right. And, and, According to most of the theory that I understand, the rapid expansion of the neocortex was in response to demands for communication and, and sophistication in terms of interrelations. Absolutely. I mean, there's all these theories that that an idea can't exist until it can be spoken mm. because it's the act of speaking it that makes it tangible. And we found that in, you know, that's why in some cultures they, they have words that don't ex exist in other places. Like J Japanese has a, has a bunch of words that don't basically don't exist in English. And if you look at the brains of Japanese speakers, people who grew up speaking Japanese, what you see is that they react to stimuli around those words differently. They literally have developed neural pathways associated with the idea that that word represents or the taste that word represents that as Americans we don't have those same neural pathways as fully developed. Yeah. Naming something makes it some, makes it more real. I remember one time I was, <clears throat> this is a long time ago. I was in graduate school um, uh, studying psychology. And I was, I was sort of at the stage where you're thinking about what am I going to do my dissertation about? You know, what am I going to dive into here for the next few years? And my girlfriend at the time, uh, whom I, with whom I was living was, um, her mother's French, her father's Catalan. She grew up in Spain and they lived in Florida when she was a young teenager. So she speaks French, Catalan, Spanish, and English totally fluently. Right. And I was watching her on the phone, talking to her mom in French. And then her dad got on the phone and she started talking in Catalan and then she wanted to say something to me. She put her hand over the receiver and said something in English. And then she went back to Catalan and then her mom got back on. And it occurred to me, that's not Peggy speaking three different languages. That's three different Peggy's. Yeah. That's three different people there, subtly different. And I remember one time we were 
making love and I said something to her in Spanish and she freaked out, totally freaked out. <laughs> and I was like, what happened? And she was like, yeah, no, you're English. You're in English. Right. And, and it was as if like, it was a different guy in bed with her suddenly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, anyway. and oftentimes people are, are like, when they're using one language, they're more confident, right? They're oh yeah. Funnier. And, sure. and, and we feel this ourselves. Anyone who's learned a new language knows that how hard it is to bring your full personality into that language when it's, when it's something you're still learning. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I certainly experienced that learning Spanish. Uh, you know, I was just always like, am I doing this right? Is that right. the right verb? Am I, I yeah. was always like on my back heel, you know? And, yeah. uh, and I had Spanish friends who the first time they heard me speak English, they were like, who the hell are you? Mr. Confidence, <laughs> you know, how come I never met that guy? Um, but, but what I was getting to earlier with all these, all these jobs for which being a, a good communicator is, is a huge benefit. What about writers? Now you're yeah. a, you're, are you, a, I don't know if you're a staff writer on the New Yorker or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, yeah, that's kind of the pinnacle of the writing world in many ways. Uh, you hang out with writers, you know, writers, you sit in meetings with writers. How do writers stack up as communicators? Uh, it's a great question. And, and I'd be curious your perspective on this as a writer yourself. Um, I mean, when it comes to written communication conversations, I think writers are pretty good, right? Sure. Because they're thinking a lot about their audience. And then the ones who carry that instinct into spoken conversation, I think are equally good. And, and some people have trouble with that, right? Like a lot of writers are introverts. It's hard for them to think in the moment yeah. about their audience. It's hard for them to empathize in the moment. Um, but I think when it comes to spoken conversation or written co communication, it's very, very similar, which is part of my brain is thinking about what I want to say. And part of my brain is thinking about how you are going to hear what I am saying. And similarly, when you're talking, part of my brain is just listening to you. And part of my brain is saying, what's underneath these words? Like, what does he want me to feel that maybe like the words aren't perfectly conveying to me, but that I can tell is there. Right. And, and that can sound complicated. Like it's can sound like I got so much stuff to think about when I'm talking, but it's actually very instinctual, right? It's like what we do normally. It's, it's a, it's a type of metacognition that humans are very good at. And, and I think what's really going on there is this recognition that just because I understand the words coming out of my mouth, I have to acknowledge that you will not hear them the same way that I am saying them. Right. And there's this woman, Sheila Heen, whom I love, at, who's at Harvard Law School, who's in the book. And, and one of the ways that she puts it is when you're fighting with someone, when you're in conflict, you both have a story inside your head about why this conflict exists. And the only thing that's certain is that those stories are not the same, right? They might be like 85% the same, but they're not a hundred percent the same. And so the, the goal of the conversation is not just to fight. The goal of the conversation is to figure out what is the story inside your head? Like, what is this? How is your story different from my story? Because until I know that I'm really not going to know what we're disagreeing about. Yeah. I think a great exercise, which people don't, I don't think it's taught anymore, but I remember, you know, in a critical thinking class or something way back in college, the professor saying, you know, you need to articulate the thing you're arguing against. What is the argument that you're arguing against? And if you can't articulate that, 
then we can't even get started here. Yeah. Um, and, no, and that is an act of respect, right? I mean, that is, I get it. I understand why you think this. I understand why you view the world the way you do. That's an act of, of intimacy. Absolutely. And, and it raises this question, like, what is the point of a conversation? Because I think that like, particularly nowadays, there's a lot of feelings that the point of a conversation is to get my, get my point across right, or to convince you that I'm right or to agree to find something we have in common. But those aren't the points of conversations. The entire point of a conversation, the, the way that, that you know if it's been successful or not is entirely, have you understood each other? Had, you had something you wanted to say to me. Do I understand what it is? And do you understand what I'm trying to tell you in response? If you understand each other, the conversation is a success. Yeah. Now you might walk away being like, that's the stupidest guy I've ever met in my entire life. I, that guy's a moron. <laughs> like I don't agree with him at all. He doesn't understand the world. That's okay. That's okay. You might decide like, we're never going to agree with each other. That's also okay. That's still a successful conversation. As long as you understand what that person's trying to say to you and they understand what you're trying to say to them. And once you set the bar there, once you say <clears throat> the goal of a conversation is understanding, suddenly the conversation gets a lot easier, right? Because I went sat next to this guy on a plane. He was a pastor and, and he struck up a conversation with me and he said he hates talking to people on planes because he feels like at some point he has to witness for Christ and try and like explain to them what Christ. <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, they don't want to hear it, but I feel bad if I don't do it. And it's just like, and, and he, and he was like, like, and my thought, my response was like, I don't know that that's an obligation you need to carry sitting on an airplane. Like that seems like a really heavy pardon the pun cross to bear just because you happen <laughs> to sit down next to someone. Like, I think actually like, if, if somebody, if you, if faith is important to you and like some, and you understand a little bit about someone else's faith and they understand a little bit more about yours, that's actually like a huge win, right? Like, that's like, that's like a meaningful conversation. And you don't have to say like, I think Christ is the greatest thing on earth. And like, you should accept Christ because they're going to know that like, that's going to come like, you don't need, you're not going to convince them in a plane ride that like they should, they could, they should convert. Unless the, the plane, goal, unless you hit really heavy. Yeah, unless you hit, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> then but it's if easy. The, if the goal is simply to like explain something about how you see the world and hear something about what, how they see the world, then you're going to have much more productive conversations. And that's so much easier than yeah. feeling like I got to tell this guy why, like, like why he should accept Jesus Christ. Well, I, I wonder if it makes sense to think of conversation as, as, in terms of music as jamming together, right? When yeah. people jam together, they're not trying to produce anything or convince anyone to, you know, come over to my time signature, you know, or no, we're doing it in the key, you know, my key. Like it's just flow back and forth. And there's no, there's no real purpose other than having this, this, this exchange. current yeah. this circuit between us right uh, that's a that's a wonderful analogy like it's a really beautiful analogy because the other thing that occurs to me is that when we do neural studies of people who are in conversation or people who are playing music together we see the exact same thing which is this neural entrainment that my, my our brains start to look alike and you're exactly right a lot of the research actually started in music to figure out like 
how do musicians perform together? What mm. we see is this neural entrainment. We see the same thing when people are having a great conversation is not only do their brains start to look like their eyes start to dilate at the same rate. They start breathing mm. like each other. Their heartbeats match, even if they're separated by hundreds or thousands of miles like we are. And this neural entrainment is at the core of communication. And it's the same thing that happens when we play music together because that's how we connect. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I, we don't have time. I, I want to let you go, but it, it would be interesting to talk about how conversation is different when mediated by technology, right? Like, yeah, it's so much harder to do this over, even if we're not getting delays and all those glitches than in a room together. Cause I think there's so much that we miss, right? Well, so it's interesting. So if you looked at what people said when the telephone first became popular, people said the exact same thing. They said, we're never going to be able to have real conversations over the phone. It's just too hard. We're missing too much information. And yet for you and me and anyone who's younger than us, we had a lot of real conversations over the phone, right? We grew up with the telephone. We learned how to use it. With cables, not the cable. right, not right, these right. mobile phones. I can't, right. I can't Although my stand kids. It. My kids have never used a phone with a cable. It's only, it's only <laughs> mobile. So I think that one of the things that's happened, why, why did that change occur? The change occurred because first of all, you just have enough time, right? To build up habits. But second of all, was this realization by our generation, earlier generations, that phone conversations are a little bit different from in-person conversations. And the, so there's certain accommodations that we mm. need to do. If you listen to how two people talking face-to-face -face, and then you put them on telephones, what you'll find is that when they're on the phones, without even realizing they're doing it, they'll over-enunciate a little bit more than the face-to-face -face conversation. They'll actually interrupt each other a little bit less. Right. They, they'll, and this is instinctual, right? When you're on a telephone, you, you, there's more, there's more micro silences because you're giving the other person the chance to speak because you can't see that they're about to speak. We don't think about that anymore. We do it automatically. And I think the same thing is happening with technology. The key is to recognize that a Zoom call is different from a phone call, is different from face-to-face, -face, is different from an email. And once we begin saying there's different ways to communicate in different formats or different channels, that's when we allow ourselves to start taking advantages of the information that we can transmit. So yeah. it's not that a face-to-face -face conversation is necessarily information richer, but it's different information than a phone conversation. Mm -hmm. And we need to learn to pay attention to that. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely in an, in an ad adaptation phase with, yes. with Zoom. And yes. Um, last thing I'll say is I get a lot of people uh, writing to me for advice on how to handle relationships. Right. Um, yeah. And, and also like uh, unconventional relationships, you know, the polyamorous relationships and so on, which are growing in popularity. And Ultimately, I feel like you and I would give people the exact same advice, which is it all comes down to communication skills. Yes. And the 100%. more complex the relationship is, the more important that becomes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, of course, the, it's two people talking to each other. If a third person enters that conversation or that relationship, it's not that you increase the complexity by 30%. You increase the, you increase it by times three, right? By 300%. Right. It's exponential. That's And I, I think everything that we've been talking about 
totally isn't essential when it comes to like romantic relationships or interpersonal relationships. And there's one other thing I would add, which is there's been a lot of research done in marriage therapy about why some couples fight and it becomes toxic and other couples fight and it basically just kind of goes away. And a lot of it has to do with what you're trying to control. So our instinct when we're in a conversation, particularly when we're in a fight or when we're in something that's a little heated is to try and control the other person, right? Like if I can just get you to see things my way, if I can just tell you the right facts, I want to control you. But the super communicators in marriages, the best people, the best marriages, those people try and control something different. They try and control three things. Actually, they try and control, first of all, the environment, instead of trying to, to control the other person, they say, look together let's decide when we're going to have this conversation because mm. setting matters. If you are doing it at night when we're exhausted, and the baby's crying, it could be a lot worse than if we wait until we're both well-rested during the day. The second thing they control is they try and control themselves, right? Because I can always control myself. I can always speak a little bit more slowly. I can take a second and say like, I just want to think about what I'm going to say before I say it. The third thing that they can try and control is the boundaries of the conflict itself or the conversation itself. There's this thing called kitchen sinking, right? And really in toxic relationships, you start talking about where you're going to spend New Year's, like, and then all of a sudden you're like talking about money and you never do the dishes and you don't get me. And this it's is why just my like your sucks. mother. Yeah, it goes everywhere, right? <laughs> Whereas if you control the boundaries of it, in really, really good, in really good marriages, what they do is they say, like, I want to talk about where we're going to spend New Year's. And like, let's just keep it to talking about New Year's, right? <laughs> Not even last New Year's, just this right. New Year's. <laughs> we all have an instinct to try and control other people. It's natural, right? Yeah. It's, it, and, it's, and it's not unhealthy. But when we're communicating with someone, if we take that same instinct and we say, I want to con control my environment, I want to control myself, I want to control the boundaries of this discussion, then you're, you're choosing something where you can cooperate together over control rather than fighting for it yeah charles thank you uh it's a great book and i wish you all the success with it because it not only will be beneficial to you it, i i think it's the rare book that will be very beneficial to anyone who reads it which i well thank you so much thank you for having me on and and if anyone listening if you want to reach out to me um my website is charlesduhig.com and if you send me an email, I'm at charles at charlesduhig.com. I respond to every reader email I get. So I can You're in trouble, them. dude. I saw that yeah. in, in the afterword. You actually put your email in there. And I'm like, man, if this sells as many copies as you want, you're not going to be able to answer all that. It's, it's not a bad, it's like, there are worse problems in this world when <laughs> I'm selling are. too many books. <laughs> there are. Your publisher should like set you up with an assistant to handle that stuff. <laughs> All right, Charles, thank you. I'm going to start recording. Thanks for having me on. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known said it 
to the ground. 